This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC San Francisco uh, Mini Medical School. My name is Steve Pantelat. I am the director of the palliative care program here at UCSF, a professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine in the School of Medicine, and I direct the palliative care service uh, here at uh, Moffat Long Hospital. Um, on behalf of the palliative care program, the Department of Medicine, the School of Medicine, and the university, it's really a pleasure to welcome you this evening to our first class in the course uh, on palliative care, um, titled Palliative Care, Living as Well as Possible for as Long as Possible for people with serious illness, people who love someone with serious illness, and the curious. So hopefully you fall into one of those uh, categories. Uh, That's just about everybody, I think. Um, So I'm going to start this evening with a little bit of good news and bad news. And let's do the good news first. So the good news is this. Um, There's never been a better time to be alive if what you want is to be alive. Uh, You can see here that life expectancy is uh, increased dramatically after being relatively flat for about 30,000 years. Um, Most of this increase is actually due to public health. Um, Clean water, good food, sanitation. Um, The the dip you see here, right here, this dip uh, is the uh, influenza in 1918, uh, influenza epidemic worldwide. And then you can see that life expectancy has just been uh, extending dramatically. Um, Those increases have everything to do with medicine and medical care and improvements in medical care. So that's the good news. So what's the bad news? Uh, The bad news is this, that the death rate has remained very stable at 100 percent, and there's no real plan to change that uh, very much, uh, even if we do live longer. Um, And that really is the challenge that we have, um, not only in medicine, but that we face as human beings, Um, is that our life is long and life is wonderful, and yet uh, life is limited, and this is the reality that we all live with. I would argue that that's, bo- that's both a challenge, but it is also a gift. To understand that life is limited also tells us that we need to do our best with the time we have, to spend it the way we want, with the people we want, doing the things that are most important to us. Um, the challenge of serious illness, of course, is that that death rate um, faces us much more uh, starkly uh, and, and much more immediately. So when we think about that, when we think about the end of life, um, it's interesting to take a historical perspective and to see what longevity has meant also um, for the way we experience illness and the end of life. And it's really quite different. A hundred years ago, chronic illness was uncommon. And people didn't have chronic illness. They didn't have diabetes and heart disease for very long. Um, There were no treatments. So you couldn't have the illness for very long. And death was like the weather. It came quickly and unexpectedly. And if you live in San Francisco, I think you really understand what that means uh, as far as the weather. And um, it typically came after a brief acute illness at a relatively young age by today's standards. So a very different experience of what illness was like and what the end of life was like. And usually illness was really brief. Maybe days, maybe weeks, as opposed to years, the way we experience it today. And this might have been what it looks like. Many of you might have seen this painting before. It is called The Doctor. It was painted by Sir Luke Fields. 
1898. It hangs in the Tate Britain Gallery in London. And it is a, it's a very large painting, um, painted in 1898 and called The Doctor, not The Sick Child, although The Sick Child is really in the center of the painting. But it's called The Doctor. It's a very respectful picture of a doctor and, in fact, has become sort of an icon of a, of a painting of a physician. But what could this doctor do for this child in 1898? Not very much is the answer. Um, You'll notice that there is a cup of tea. I think that's for the doctor, not for the child. Um, And if you've been to a hospital recently, if you've been to Mission Bay or here at uh, UCSF or any other hospital, you'll you'll recognize that this looks nothing like a hospital. Um, There's nothing here. There's no monitors. There's no IVs. There's no antibiotics because they did not exist. And yet... This was a very respectful painting of a physician because the physician is doing something really important in this painting. The physician is there with the patient. And in fact, the physician's been there all night. You can see dawn light is coming in through the window and the lantern is lit. So the doctor has been there all night long looking uh, over this patient. And it is easy in our technological age when there's so much we can do for patients to forget how important this is. But in serious illness, we recognize that this attending uh, to, to the patient and the relationship between the doctor and the patient is actually very, very important um, to, to, to healing uh, and to care. So what does this look like today? Um, well, it, it looks different. Uh, today, treatments for serious illness help people live longer uh, with a better quality of life. Um, we have treatments that really do help people do much better, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, um, emphysema, liver disease. There are tremendous uh, advances in medicine that really help people live longer and better and achieve that 80-plus year lifespan that we showed earlier. Um, But exacerbations in hospital admissions are the norm. Along with living longer means we live longer with illness, and it often will get worse, and we end up in hospitals. Um, That's not always everyone's favorite place to be. Um, It's most people's unfavorite place to be, but that is typical. And death comes after years of serious chronic illness, Um, whether that's from heart disease or cancer or stroke. We, we, in general, we will live with illness for years and sometimes decades, and that really changes um, how we think about how we live and also how we think about the end of life. The challenge, then, is to help people achieve the best possible quality of life for as long as possible, and, importantly, consistent with their goals and preferences. To understand that each of us has a different idea of how we want to live with our illness, the kinds of treatments we think we want to have, and how we want to live out our life, and also how we face the end of life. So I'm going to ask you for a moment to imagine that. Imagine the end of your life. Who you're with what you're doing, what setting you're in. Okay. How many people had this image in mind? Anyone? Okay, a couple. All right. Always a couple. Um, So what is this? This is an ICU. This is not UCSF, but it almost could be UCSF, maybe a few years ago. So what do we see here? A patient on the left in a bed, alone, IVs, monitors, very different than the painting I just showed you. Um, This is modern medicine at its uh, uh, fullest right here. Here we have another patient in the bed. Someone is at the bedside. We have a doctor, nurse, maybe a respiratory therapist is here. For most of us, this is not what we imagine. Certainly not what we would want to have. Um, And yet, one in five Americans will die 
in the hospital during an admission in which they spent time in the ICU. So while that was not 20% of us in this room, one in five of us will end up that way unless we do something different. And part of what we'll talk about in this course is how we might make decisions for ourselves and our loved ones to have a different experience of serious illness and a different experience of the end of life than we might otherwise have um, in in modern American healthcare, um, which despite all of its great advances also can create challenges. And I think this is best summarized by uh, Eric Cassell, who wrote this um, along back in 1985 about the nature of suffering and the goals of medicine. He wrote, the relief of suffering and the cure of disease must be seen as twin obligations of a medical profession that is truly dedicated to the care of the sick. Failure to understand the nature of suffering can result in medical intervention that, though technically adequate, not only fails to relieve suffering, but becomes a source of suffering itself. And too often this is what we see that the medical treatments that we are providing to help relieve suffering actually become the source of suffering. And if you look at someone in the ICU and just take a step back and really just look, you'll see that, that a lot of the treatments we do are actually adding suffering in the hope of relieving more suffering. Um, But as as we get sicker, um, the chances of relieving the suffering go down and the chance of adding to the suffering become greater. And, And so thinking about what's important to us and how we think about these treatments becomes very important. The challenge is that um, there's mismatched care for the seriously ill. In part, people receive care they do not want from which they cannot benefit. I don't know how many of you read Atul Gawande's recent article um, that talked about this, was in the New Yorker, um, about this challenge in medicine. Um, And people fail to receive care they do want from which they will benefit, such as relief of pain for example, which is so important to so many people, and yet it's often inadequate. So I want to just take a survey of sort of who's, uh, of who's here tonight and just ask a couple questions. Um, how many people are, just, are here um, just because they're curious? Just curious. Okay. Great. Okay. The curious ones. Um, how many people are here for themselves? Because this topic relates, okay, good. I guess you can vote in more than one category. We're not in Chicago, but feel free to vote as often uh, as you want. Um, And how many people are here for someone they love? Yeah, okay, great, okay. And how many people um, think, think they know something about palliative care or have heard it before? Oh, good. Oh, fabulous. Wow, that's great. Okay, terrific, good. All right. Well, um, so you're different than most Americans. So let me just show you this uh, survey that was done um, by the Regents Foundation um, back in 2011. And they asked uh, Americans the following question. How familiar are you with the following terms? So if you look at, the, uh, at your far right here, a hospice care, um, you can see that most Americans, 86%, were familiar with the term hospice care. 65% felt familiar with end-of-life care. And only 24% felt like they had, uh, that they were familiar um, with the term palliative care. Um, not that surprising. Now, that's only four years ago. My guess is if we were to repeat that today with some of the things that's been happening in, um, in our society um, with the publication of Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. How many people read that book? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, terrific. Um, that may be different, but uh, 
still it's uncommon uh, that people know. So let me share with you a definition of palliative care. This is a definition that was developed by some of my colleagues at the Center to Advance Palliative Care in New York. It's a, it's a wonderful definition that really gets at the heart of, of what palliative care is about. And I see a lot of you taking notes, and you should feel free to take notes, but I should let you know that all the slides for the entire course will be available online. So they are actually posted to the website um, right now. And I guess in the future, if you come and you bring a, a, something electronic, you can actually get online um, and you could actually watch the slides in real time, which is what all the medical students do um, for the few lectures that are left in medical school. At least I hope that's what they're doing and not on Facebook or something else, but who knows. So what is palliative care? Palliative care is specialized medical care for people with serious illness. This type of care is focused on providing patients with relief from the symptoms, pain, and stress of a serious illness, whatever the diagnosis. The goal is to improve quality of life for both the patient and the family. Palliative care is provided by a team of doctors, nurses, and other specialists who work with the patient's other doctors to provide an extra layer of support. Palliative care is appropriate at any age and at any stage in a serious illness and can be provided together with curative treatment. Now, that's a lot. There will not be a test on this uh, in this in this class, but uh, that's a lot. But there's a lot of th- points here that are very important that I've highlighted, and I just want to I want to highlight those for you now. That palliative care is about serious illness. Um, it's not. It is for people with serious illness. What is a serious illness? We'll talk about that in a moment. But heart disease, cancer, dementia, those are serious illnesses. Stroke, those are all serious illnesses. Um, Uh, It's not only for people who are at the end of life, although it is also for that. Um, And it is for the relief from the symptoms, pain, and stress of a serious illness. Anyone who's been sick with a serious illness or has a loved one who's had a serious illness knows that it is stressful. Even when things go well and even when you recover, it's stressful, let alone when you have something serious that you, from which you may not recover. Um, there's pain that we, that we are concerned about and other symptoms, fatigue, shortness of breath, nausea. Our goal is to help relieve those symptoms and help to relieve the stress. The goal fundamentally is to improve quality of life. Abraham Lincoln said, it's not the years in your life but the life in your years that matters. And whether we measure life in years or sometimes in months or for the patients we'll see in the hospital, sometimes we are measuring life in weeks or even days. The goal is how can we help people have the best possible quality of life for that time. And finally, palliative care is providing an extra layer of support. Again, when faced with serious illness, we need We need that help. We need that support. And palliative care provides an extra layer of support, extra on top of whatever other care you're you're getting from your primary care physician, uh, from specialists, from from family and friends. Uh, The idea is to give an extra layer of support. So if you take home one message from today's presentation, uh, I want this to be the message, that palliative care is not end-of-life care. So forget that. Um, And it is care focused on improving quality of life for people with serious illness. Um, This is my take-home message to you. Um, Believe it or not, this is my take-home message to the medical students when I teach in medical school as well, um, and to my colleagues when I'm teaching them. So we'll look at four areas today as we go forward. One, who palliative care is for, who it's for, what it does, why you want it, 
and you do, and when you should get it. And think about organizing the, the rest of my comments tonight on those questions. And if you have questions, I encourage you to write them down, and I'll be delighted to uh, answer questions um, at the end. So let's think first, who is palliative care for? Um, and we talked about serious illness, and I just wanted to make a list of serious illness. Heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, and stroke. Those are serious illness. Those are also happen to be the top four leading causes of death in the United States, actually in the developed world. Those are the, those are the things that get us, and those are things that we, lived with, we live with um, for years. Dementia. Kidney failure, liver failure. These are all serious illnesses for which people who have this, these illnesses um, can benefit from palliative care and should be receiving it. Who else is it for? All ages. So fortunately, children comprise only a very small population of people who need palliative care in the United States. Um, again, uh, we've done really a remarkable job in providing uh, good care for children so that the death of a child and serious illness in a child is really rare in the United States, but nonetheless, it does happen. Um, And in our children's hospital, at the Benioff Children's Hospital here in San Francisco and in Oakland, we offer palliative care services uh, for children. It's for all stages of a serious illness, and I'll show you what that looks like in a little bit. But it's not just at the end, but it's throughout the illness to think about how can we live well, and it's all settings. Um, Getting palliative care at home, getting palliative care in the office, getting palliative care in the hospital. I can tell you that that's not easy to do in America. San Francisco is blessed in many ways with having more access to these services than most cities or most parts of California, but nonetheless, we are underserved with palliative care services. If you're in a hospital, it's very easy to get palliative care, particularly in San Francisco. It's really good in the Bay Area, pretty good throughout California, particularly if you're in a city. Getting palliative care in the office is much less common, much harder to do. You can get it here at UCSF, um, but it's not as common throughout the state. And to get palliative care at home uh, is difficult except through hospice, and we'll talk a little bit about hospice in a bit. So if you ask people uh, who are getting palliative, who who are seriously ill, um, what they want, um, it leads us to think about what it is palliative care does. So what does palliative care do? Well, let's think about what it is that people want, what seriously ill people want. And here are a couple studies um, that were published um, about 15 years ago um, that asked people with serious illness, you know, what is it that you need from the healthcare system? What would make your life better? And it really came down to three areas. One, relief of symptoms. People said, look, I don't want to be in pain or short of breath or fatigued. I'm really worried about that. Communication about illness, treatment, and help making decisions. Say, look, these are complex decisions. There's a lot to think about. I'm not an expert. I want help in trying to make the best decisions possible. And they wanted support, emotional, psychological, spiritual, practical. Support in dealing with the illness, in relieving the stress. That is what palliative care does. Palliative care is focused in these areas, the relief of symptoms, communication about illness, and helping people make good decisions, and providing support. And in fact, that is how we've organized the course as well. So if you look or if you have looked at the course outline, um, next week, next Tuesday on May 26, Rebecca Sudori, an uh, uh, associate professor here at UCSF, um, will be speaking about 
decision-making and how we make decisions, talking about advanced care planning, how we make decisions in advance, how we appoint people to make decisions for us if we can. And in fact, what we'll be, do- what we'll be doing is, um, as part of the class next week, is breaking up into uh, small groups and having an opportunity to consider our own advanced directive. So if you haven't done that, we'll actually have an opportunity to do that um, next week. Um, the week after that, we'll talk about spirituality and spiritual Ill- issues in, uh, in serious illness. And uh, the chaplain for our palliative care team, Dina Joseph, will be leading that. I think Dina's here tonight somewhere. Dina? Yeah, in the back. Yep, that's great. And then um, the following week, we're going to actually have a panel of uh, – patients here at UCSF and family members who've experienced serious illness to kind of share how to think about talking with doctors and nurses and how to advocate uh, in, in the healthcare setting. Um, then we'll have a session by uh, Christine Ritchie, who's a professor of medicine here, about pain management, one of the important symptoms that we need to address. And we'll finish uh, on June 23rd. Uh, Mike Rabo, uh, another professor of medicine here, uh, palliative care physician, will talk about caregivers and how we can support caregivers. Uh, many of us uh, will, will be in both roles as uh, providing care and needing care, talk about how we take care of caregivers. Um, so we've organized the course around what it is people tell us they want and need and what palliative care provides. Um, here are some uh, interesting results from a survey that was conducted by the California Healthcare Foundation back in 2001. And they asked people in California this question, rate factors that are extremely important at the end of life. And what did they come up with? The first, making sure family not burdened financially by my care, was considered important by 67% of people. It's very interesting. Kind of the top vote-getter, if you will, is to not burden my family financially. Being comfortable and without pain, by two-thirds. Being at peace spiritually, by 60% of people. Making sure family is not burdened by tough decisions about my care. What was not that important? Living as long as possible was rated as very important, extremely important, by only 36%. Which is in part what you might expect, although we always think about people thinking that they want to live as long as possible. I see every day, in fact, today I spent my day on the palliative care service, um, and I talked to many patients today. And while people do hope that the treatments will work, um, getting the most treatment and living the very longest possible, if that means being in the ICU, is not always uh, what people talk about and not always what they want. So why do you want palliative care? Why why do you want this kind of care? I mean, it doesn't sound bad, to be honest. It sounds pretty good, just the way I described it. But let me give you some studies that actually explain why you really want this care. So here was a study um, that provided simultaneous palliative care from the time of diagnosis. And let me just walk you through this. This was conducted at a cancer clinic at an academic medical center. Actually, it was done at Harvard, at Massachusetts General Hospital. 151 people with a new diagnosis of incurable lung cancer. So at the time that this diagnosis was made, the lung cancer diagnosis, it was not curable. It's treatable, but not curable. All people received the best oncology care, which is to say they received their cancer care at Harvard, which I understand is pretty good. (laughs) It's not UCSF. (laughs) But apparently, if you're in Boston, it's not a bad place. Um, 
And half of people were then randomly assigned to also receive simultaneous palliative care. So everyone got best cancer care that they knew how to give, and half the people got randomly assigned to getting palliative care alongside it. So what happened to the people who also got palliative care? Well, all good things uh, is the answer. Um, They had a better quality of life as they rated it. Um, They had less pain, less shortness of breath, and less nausea. They had less depression. They had a lower chance of dying in the ICU, which is where people don't want to be. And finally, and importantly, Longer life by 2.7 months on average, a survival of almost a year versus nine months. That's as good as chemotherapy. Importantly, no bad side effects from palliative care. No one did badly. No one got a rash. No one got sick from it. All good things that we want to happen to ourselves and to our loved ones happened for the people who are who are received palliative care in addition to their cancer care. Does that mean that everyone with incurable lung cancer in America now gets palliative care from the time of diagnosis? It does not. We, we sort of talk about this in our field, and we say, you know, if this was a pill, then everybody would get it. And the company that, de- that designed this pill would be making a lot of money. You'd wish you had invested in that. But this is not a pill This is doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains working together to provide a service. And therefore, it's been more difficult to make happen and to provide. And it's something that we are working hard to make sure is available to all of our patients here at UCSF. So that's palliative care broadly. What about these conversations we talked about, talking about the kind of care you want? So this is a study that showed that conversations about end of life are good for you and your loved ones. You might think, oh, I don't really want to talk about that stuff. That is kind of a downer. Um, But it turns out it's good to talk about this stuff with your doctor. So they enrolled 332 people with advanced cancer at four cancer centers across the country. And they asked them this question at enrollment. Have you and your doctor discussed any particular wishes you have about the care you would want to receive if you were dying? That's what they asked. And it turned out that 37% of people said yes. I've actually talked about this with my doctor. The people who had a conversation were not depressed, sad, terrified, or worried. So nothing bad happened to the people who had these conversations. And interestingly, nothing about the person predicted having a conversation. So you might think to yourself, oh, I know. It's the sicker people. They're the ones who had the conversation. Not true. Well, maybe it was older people. Not true. Maybe it was people who had a lot of other illnesses. Also not true. Maybe it was people with the worst cancer. Also not true. There's nothing about the individual. There was one thing, though, that did predict whether, whether a patient had, a person had this conversation with their doctor. Can you think of what that is? Education. No, not education. Good thought. They looked at that. Spiritual. No, not spiritual care. Yeah. No. Good. 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 All good thoughts. Yes. Yes, the doctor. That's exactly right. Um, So it had everything to do with where you got your care, who your doctor was. In one setting, in one cancer center, 65% of people reported having this conversation. In another, it was only 13%. So where you get your care, who your doctor is, matters tremendously. What I tell the medical students is, this is our obligation as physicians to bring this up. Our patients are willing to talk to us. But we have to bring this up. We have to know how to do it. And what I would say to, the, to you is that 
not to put the burden on you, but to say that if you, if you really want to have this conversation, you should bring it up with your doctor. I'm going to give you a couple of ways to think about it, a couple of ways to start the conversation. So what happened to these people? They then followed them forward until people died, and then they followed up with their loved ones. So what did they find? The conversations were associated with a better quality of life near death in the last weeks of life, lower likelihood of dying in the ICU, again, now come people didn't want, and better outcomes for loved ones. So when they surveyed the loved ones six months after their loved one died, they were less likely to have depression and complicated grief if their loved one had reported having this conversation. So something we can not only do for ourselves, but something that we can do for others that we care about is to have this conversation. It's really remarkable to think about that a conversation between a patient and a doctor can not only affect the individual's health, but also affect their loved ones in a good way. There aren't many things in medicine that are like that. Right? If I treat your high blood pressure, your partner doesn't get healthier. Right? It really, I'm sorry about that. That's just for you. In fact, the only thing I can think of uh, that does work that way is smoking cessation. So if you can get someone to stop smoking, their loved ones will actually have a better health outcome. So that's one thing. Um, but, it, but they're rare. So another reason to have this conversation. Okay. So that's why you want it. You want it because you'll live better and longer and your loved ones will live better. When should you get it? So this is a picture of what palliative care looks like, what that extra layer of support looks like. And let me just um, highlight some important things here. So here, at time zero on this graph, if you will, is diagnosis with a serious illness. Maybe it's lung cancer, right? Um, where most of the focus is appropriately on cure, but some of the focus may still be on palliative care. So let me give you an example of a, of a patient I took care of um, many years ago. He was 89 years old. He lived at home with his wife, um, still driving, living independently. One morning, his wife calls me because she can't get him out of bed. He's got hip pain, right hip pain, very severe, and he can't get out of bed, and she doesn't know what to do. So, well, you got to call an ambulance, bring him to the emergency room. So she did. And he came to the emergency room, and I met them there, and we, I looked at him. We got an X-ray thinking he might have broken his hip, and the X-ray showed there was no fracture, nothing, not broken. So we got a CT scan, because maybe there was a small fracture that we couldn't see. So we got a CT scan. Um, and if you've ever had one of those, you know, they don't just look at the area. They, get a, they go kind of above and below. There was no fracture in the hip. But when, they, when the X-ray went through the liver, what they found was unexpected masses in the liver that were suspicious for cancer. So they arranged for him to get a biopsy of his liver. Uh, and then he came back to my office. And the biopsy showed that he, in fact, had cancer, colon cancer. So he came to my office with his son and his wife, and they sat down in my office. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but the biopsy showed that you have cancer, colon cancer that has spread to your liver. And he immediately had two questions. Can you imagine what those two questions were? How long do I have? First question. Can I stay home? No, that came up later. Am I going to die? First two questions. I thought he was going to ask, 
Dr. Pallet, why didn't you find this sooner? Which I thought was a very reasonable question for him to ask, actually. Um, but that wasn't it. At the time of diagnosis, his questions really had to do about, am I going to die? Which is really what most of us think about when we get bad news like this. That is the first thing we think about, not the last. And talking about it can be a relief. Um, so we talked about those things. And I told him that um, this was serious. And it was likely going to be the, the illness, even at his age, likely to be the illness that would end his life. And that we were going to do whatever we could to help him have the best possible quality of life. He had palliative care questions at the time of diagnosis. He didn't have symptoms. He didn't have pain. The cancer wasn't causing the pain. But he had questions. And many people do. And we need to be able to have conversations about these questions, um, honest and um, compassionate conversations, so that we can really start to think about these issues. What was very interesting in that conversation is that it became clear that he thought he had maybe two or three weeks to live, that somehow in his mind he had thought that when you got cancer you were going to die very soon. Maybe that had happened in his family, but he actually had more like a year. Um, So talking about that was actually good news for him, although it was terrible news. Um, So palliative care was a focus right at the time of diagnosis, as it is for many people. Then we had a bigger focus on cure. He actually got chemotherapy. He got sick from it, so he needed more palliative care. And what this shows is that over time, either because people say, you know what, I'm tired of these treatments. I don't want any more chemotherapy. I'm tired of coming to the hospital. Or because, unfortunately, we run out of treatments for the illness. Um, Palliative care plays a larger role in in care. Um, But even at the very end of life, we have people, for example, with heart disease um, who, even at the very end of life, we're treating their heart disease. We continue to treat it because it makes them feel better. But we also provide things like morphine to help with their shortness of breath and oxygens to ease their breathing. This shows us, we'll talk about hospice in a moment, but this shows us hospice is a service that's provided at home for people where the doctor is comfortable giving a six-month prognosis. We'll talk more about hospice in a moment. And I show this just to remind us all that you know, bereavement is something that we all experience. Grief and loss is what we experience when a loved one dies. And while it does get easier, generally by about six months, the really acute grief does get better. Um, it never goes away. So you'll sometimes hear people, oh, you know, you'll get over it. Um, I always tell people, you don't get over the death of a loved one. Um, it does get easier, um, but you always remember, and there's always some sense of loss and grief that's there. We call this the best possible quality of life for as long as possible. That's, our, that's the goal in palliative care, um, is throughout this course of illness, to help people have the best quality of life for as long as possible. So let me just talk about hospice. I mentioned that briefly. Um, So the first point, all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. Hospice is the most common way to get palliative care in the United States. It's available in every community in the United States, certainly in every community in California. We're blessed in the Bay Area to have actually many good hospices uh, here in San Francisco and in the greater Bay Area. uh, It's a service for people nearing the end of life. It is a service. Um, A lot of people think of hospice as a place. uh, That may be because the origins are back in Europe. And in Europe, they are often places. So if you go to 
England, if you go to France, you'll find hospices that are in fact places, places that took care of the sick. In the United States, though, it's developed as a service that's provided primarily at home. It requires the physician to state a six-month prognosis. What that means, I can tell you, because doctors are not very good at this, it generally means people spend about a month on average in hospice. And 15% of people spend less than a week in hospice. It provides 24-7 access to palliative care experts. There's always someone on the other end of the phone, someone who can come home. And that is often incredibly valuable for, for people who are sick and their family. What I hear most often is, I wish I had gotten hospice sooner. And so my pitch here is to think of it, and to think of it early, and to get, and to get hospice services early. And ask for it along with other treatments. So the challenge with hospice in the United States and the way we've designed it is we've basically said, look, um, if you choose hospice, that's the care you get. And you basically have to say, no, I'm not going to get all this other kind of care, like curative treatments, like chemotherapy, like um, uh, radiation therapy for cancer, like coming back to the hospital. And it has to do with just how we pay for it and how we've decided to pay for it in the United States. Back in 1982, when this was uh, became... Uh, a benefit um, in Medicare back in 1982. Maybe the best thing Ronald Reagan did, frankly, as a president, was sign that piece of legislation um, that created hospice. Forward-thinking health systems today are not forcing people to make a choice between hospice and continuing to get curative care. And so by saying you should ask for it, what I'm saying is you should, you should, in essence, demand it, certainly request it to get it simultaneous, like that study I talked to you about. It's not easy to get palliative care at home any other way currently, although we do have a program here at UCSF called Bridges, which is home palliative care. But the easiest way to get it at home is through hospice. And if you ask for it, there are many insurance companies that will provide it simultaneously. And if they ask, tell them, I said you should be able to get this service, and they can call me. Um, So that's hospice. So we talked about the conversation. I want to give you a couple of conversation starters, things to think about. Um, When you think about what lies ahead, what worries you the most? When you think about the future, what do you hope for? I find these to be very good questions that doctors can ask and nurses and social workers and chaplains can ask patients. But I think it's also very good for us as individuals to think about this. What do we worry about? What do we hope for? What do we hope will happen when we think of the future? When you think about this, it puts things very differently. People don't usually hope for chemotherapy. They hope to see their grandchild be born. They hope to see their daughter get married. These are the kinds of things that we talk about. And if we think about what it is that's fundamentally most important to us, it leads us to to plan for those and to make those happen. So I want to show you this. This is a picture of one of our comfort care suites. We have three of these here in the hospital in um, Moffat Long Hospital at UCSF. Um, they are designed to look more like home, but they do not look like home. No one, no one has a home that looks like this. That's pretty clear. <laughs> I always say if, if you fell asleep one night and they lifted you up while you were asleep and deposited you in this room, you would not think you were home. Um, but it is nicer. And w- w- 
What's important about this room really is the focus on the family. Um, so these um, fold out so that um, family can spend the night. It's a slightly bigger room. This is linoleum that looks like hard wood. Um, sometimes you'll see um, photographs and other mementos here on the, on the windowsill. Um, I've seen, you know, children playing video games on the monitor, porta cribs, music. Um, the idea being that we are trying to create a home-like setting um, for people who cannot be home, who are at the end of their lives, would, would like to be home, cannot be home for whatever reason. Their medical care is such that they, they need to be in the hospital. Um, there's also, um, if you've been in a hospital room, you've seen kind of the air and the suction and the oxygen that comes out of the wall. We have that in this room. It's, it's hidden behind cabinets. And the way we modeled this room is uh, we modeled it on the birthing suites here at UCSF. So before the Benioff Children's uh, Hospital and the Women's Hospital opened at Mission Bay, um, this is the 14th floor. On the 15th floor, right through the ceiling, were the birthing suites. Big rooms, nice view, home-like environment, medical equipment hidden. So birth does not have to be medicalized if it's not necessary, but it can be for the safety and comfort of, of, the, of the mother and the baby. And we took the same approach to um, the bookend, the end of life, and thinking that's very fitting, that it can be as medicalized as necessary to help people be comfortable. It can be as um, natural and unmedicalized um, as possible for when that's not necessary. So what do people hope for? They hope for healing where there is no cure. It's very interesting to think about the fact that we can feel healed even though we are not cured. For comfort in the face of suffering. That we can be comforted. So even when we can't cure an illness, we can still be comforted even when there is suffering. And for all that can still be despite all that cannot be. There is still a lot that we can accomplish in the setting of serious illness and even in the setting of, of limited life. Thinking about those questions makes that possible. So we had a patient who was in our ICU with very serious lung disease, was on very, very high flow oxygen, so high that she actually could not leave the ICU. This was a level of oxygen we couldn't provide outside of our ICU. So she could not go home. She was there. Um, We were hoping her lungs would get better, but honestly didn't think they would. And when we were talking with her about what she hoped for, she said, well, I hope to see my daughter get married. I said, well, that would be lovely. When is she getting married? In about 10 months. I said, wow, that's hard. And she was not planning to get married in our ICU, I should tell you that uh, as well. That was not the location. So we talked about that and said, you know, if that's really important, maybe we have to do something different and think about maybe she can get married here in the hospital. And that's exactly what happened. So she came in one day in her wedding dress, and they put a corsage on the patient in the bed, and, you know, her fiancé groom was in his tuxedo, and there were about 40 family members crowding around this little ICU room, um, and they got, she got married right there, and her mom could be there with her. Um, and it was really lovely. What made that possible uh, was not the logistics, but was just asking about what was important and thinking about what was important and what it was that she hoped for. Another patient who was in one of our comfort care suites, she had um, cancer, and she had fluid around both of her lungs. So she had tubes coming out of her chest to drain the fluid so she wasn't short of breath. And um, I was talking to her one morning. I said, you know, how, how are you doing? What are you worried about? She says, I'm really worried that I'm going to be alone, and I'm, really, I'm, I'm scared about being alone. 
And so I said, well, you know, we've got a lot of people here. We'll, we'll be with you. And she said, okay. So we talked about it as a team, and we decided that, you know, whenever we swing, whenever you're walking by, just go in and say hello because she doesn't want to be alone. So, you know, just stop by, say hello. The nurses would take their charts in there. They would chart in the room just to keep her company. And the next day I went by, I said, you know, how, how are things? And she said, well, you know, it's fine, but, boy, it's been hard to get any rest around here. <laughs> so the caveat is be careful what you hope for because you, you might actually get it. Um, the other thing to say about hope uh, is that hope is durable, um, and hopelessness is a sign of depression. So I ask this question of, of people that I take care of because people who don't have hope, who say, you know, there's nothing I hope for, may be depressed, and depression, even in serious illness, and near the end of life, is not normal in response to treatment. Just today I was talking with a family of a young man um, with cancer, with widely spread cancer. And they were saying, yeah, you know, you asked him yesterday about depression, and there were a lot of people in the room, so I don't think he really talked about it, but we think he might be depressed. But, you know, of course we understand it because he's got cancer, and gosh, he wouldn't be depressed. And the answer is, that's not normal. Depression is not normal. Depression is an illness. It's an illness even in serious illness. You may be sad. You may feel a lot of grief in the face of serious illness. But depression is not normal, and it does respond to treatment. And we have treatments that can work actually relatively quickly in the setting of serious illness. One other thing I want to say here is that discussing prognosis will not take away hope. Some people say, oh, you don't tell people what's really going on. You know, don't find out what's really going on because, boy, that'll take away your hope. But that turns out not to be true. It's been studied. It's been looked at. It's not true. And um, the challenge, of course, is that um, prognosis is not easy, but talking about it doesn't take away hope. Prognosis is difficult, however. Yogi Berra said, prediction is hard, especially of the future. Um, and Yogi Berra was right about a lot of things, including that. It's real, it, it is. It's hard to do. And, if you, and I always tell the students, I say, never give someone a day or a time because you'll be wrong. So I did this early in my career. I was talking with a patient. I said, well, you know, I think, I think it's about six months. And this was, one of the, this was a patient who fortunately did better than that. I was wrong, um, fortunately. Um, and sure enough, the, you know, like the next week I got a call from the patient saying, hey, Dr. Panelat, it's me. Um, <laughs> six months in a week. Uh, and I, I was delighted. I'm like, that is so wonderful. I'm glad I was wrong. But I, I learned you know, that we cannot predict the future. And yet we can offer information because people want to know. That's what we've learned. The people actually do want to know. Yes, they want it to be a little bit optimistic, but people do want to know. And without information, people infer. Let me um, give you an example of that from a movie. How many people have seen the movie Ikiru by Kurosawa, the Japanese movie? Yeah. So I'll, I'm just going to summarize one scene for you. So the movie is about a Japanese civil servant in uh, post-war Japan. He's kind of middle-aged. And you see him at work, and you see that he's very nervous, very anxious, um, and he develops this pain in his stomach. And he decides he has to go to the doctor. So he goes to the doctor, and he's in the waiting room, and he's very nervous. You can see this guy is very nervous. So another patient comes over to him and says, relax. It is very easy. When you go in to see the doctor, just ask the doctor what you should eat. And if the doctor tells you what to eat, you're going to be fine. And if the doctor says you can eat whatever you want, that means you're going to die. (laughs) Sure enough, at the very end, he goes to the doctor. he's, He's sitting across from the doctor, and he says, so doctor, tell me, what should I eat? And the doctor says, you can eat whatever you want. Oh. 
<laughs> and he assumes he's going to die. And he's right. I've not ruined the movie for you, by the way. That is not the point of the movie. Um, and in fact, if you, if you have any medical background, you'll see that there's actually an x-ray behind the doctor's head. It is what's called a barium swallow. It's an x-ray of the stomach, and there's a very classic-looking cancer lesion in the stomach. So um, if you see the movie, you'll know. Uh, the movie is really about what he does with that information, assuming he's going to die. It turns out he's right. But so often we get this information we don't want to ask, and we're not right. I can't tell you how often I've seen it go the other way, where people get it wrong. Like that patient I told you about, when I told him he had cancer, he thought he had two or three weeks to live. Boy, would he have lived his life differently if it was two or three weeks. It was much longer than that, fortunately. What's the name of that movie again? Ikiru. Ikiru. I K I. Are you? Thank you. Yes, I think that's right. By Kurosawa. If you look up Kurosawa, he's got a lot of movies, but you'll find it. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that. Thank you very much. It means, oh, it means to live. That's awesome. I didn't even think to look up that it had meaning. Thank you. Um, and then you can also ask for ranges. So the doctors, I mean, what do doctors say? Doctors say, I don't have a crystal ball, which is true. They say, who really knows, which is also true. But that's not exactly true. Um, you can ask for ranges. Are we talking years? Are we talking months to years, weeks to months, days to weeks? You know, in the hospital in particular, that has a lot of meaning to people. You know, if it's days, people don't go home. If it's months, you have to make plans. And if it's years, it's very different about how you think about your future. The most important reason, though, for any of us to think about prognosis is this, that we would all live our lives differently if we knew we had only one year to live. For example, you might not come to next week's talk. (laughs) It's going to be a really good session next week, and I think you should come. But if someone called you tomorrow and said you had a year to live, you might decide to do something totally different uh, going forward, including not coming to this talk. Um, I think we all think that this is true. And because it's true, we should have that information. I teach the doctors, the medical students, that we need to talk about this with our patients. We need to talk about it with people to let them know. But also for us as individuals to know that these are the kinds of questions that we want to ask and we have a right to have this information so that if we want to change what we do, we have that opportunity. Um, Because prognosis is opportunity. Even when it's bad news, it is opportunity. It creates an opportunity to do something different, to live our lives differently, to think about how we want to spend our time in a different way than we might do it otherwise. It's permission. It gives you permission, um, permission to tell your story, to say the things you want to say. Um, There's a lot written about this, that recognizing that life is limited and understanding limited prognosis actually gives people permission. I actually encourage this of people as well, to tell their stories and to share that. And finally, that it helps with priorities. Priorities like bringing closure to important relationships. My good friend Ira Bayok, who's also a palliative care physician, wrote a book called Dying Well. He's actually written a few books, but he wrote Dying Well back in 1994, I believe. Um, And he said there's five things we should say to people we care about to bring closure to relationships. Forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. And if you think about it, that really covers the things you want to say. And we can think about this in trying to bring closure. I mean, this is something you can say every day, um, but certainly um, 
as we think about the end of life, we can do this. I encourage families um, to say this. You can say it on the phone. You can say it when your loved one doesn't respond to you because there's power in the saying as well as in the hearing. And I've had people go through them all. I've said that. I've told her that. She knows that. I've said that. It's time to say goodbye. So here's our cabinet of spiritual objects. So we used to have one of these in our comfort care suites. Um, so you'll, you'll recognize a lot of these, I think. Torah, Kiddush cup, crucifixes of many different styles. We had a Quran. We have a Buddha, a bell. We had Hindu icons. We had a Bhagavad Gita. We had a Book of Mormon, um, hymns. Uh, we had crystals because we're in San Francisco. Um, the point here was that we wanted to um, let people know that we understand that spiritual issues are important and that we respect them and that we want people to be able to talk about them. Um, it turned out that we actually got some feedback that maybe this was a little heavy-handed. Um, we did have someone who was a, um, a devout atheist who asked us to cover it, and it was at that point that we thought, you know, maybe this is a little too much. Um, the icons are available, but it makes the point of the importance of spirituality, and we'll have a whole session in two weeks that really focuses on this issue and what spirituality is about, but I just wanted to say just a couple of things. Is um, that in your office? Is that in your no, it was in the comfort care suite in that room that I showed you. Yeah, yeah, no, not in my office. My office, there's no room for that in my office. Uh, no, but the icons are still available, and we have a wonderful spiritual care program that you'll hear more about um, from Dina Joseph. Um, but what I wanted to say here about the spiritual and other things is that there is no right way to approach illness and end of life. There's no right way to do it. Um, people, you'll hear people talk about a good death, and you have to have a good death as if they have an idea of what a good death is. I, I would argue there is no good death. One of my colleagues likes to say the only good death is someone else's. Uh, <laughs> that I believe. <laughs> Maybe that's true, but I haven't seen it. I've seen it a lot. I've been at the bedside of many people who are dying and many people who have been very peaceful, but I haven't seen one that's been good. Not in a fundamentally good way, because they're all sad, and they involve loss and grief. And so I I hope that we are able to, when we do care for people at the end of life, that we can make it more peaceful than it would be if we hadn't been there, and that we can make it more peaceful for the individual who's dying, for their family members, Um, but I don't think we make it good. Um, But just to recognize that illness, the way we approach illness and the way we approach end of life is very personal. Each of us is individual. It's very cultural. There's a lot of cultural definitions about how this unfolds um, that we bring with us. Um, So we ask in your family to think about in your family, how does this happen? We live in a very multicultural society, and it's really um, incredible the different um, traditions that people have that are very important. Again, if we don't ask about them, if we don't talk about them, we won't know. Um, and ultimately about the spiritual. I like to ask the question, are you at peace to, to address this? But it's also about meaning and relationship, and we'll hear more about this um, in a couple of weeks. I just wanted to mention for a moment, as before we close, um, about the UCSF Palliative Care Program. We're very proud of it. Um, we offer clinical services, which is to say we provide palliative care. Um, we have palliative care services. That's what PCS is here at Parnassus, at Mission Bay, at San Francisco General, and at the VA. So all of our sites offer palliative care services in the hospital. We have something called SMS, which is our symptom management service that's available in our cancer center. We're also now offering it to people with advanced heart failure and are building those programs as well. 
well to make it available to people. You don't have to be a patient here at UCSF um, to be referred to the SMS. Um, And we have a program called Bridges. Um, Bridges is a wonderful program that provides palliative care in the home, a doctor who comes to the home to see people at home. And we are building out that program, both to expand it beyond San Francisco and also um, to include more people. Um, So we're always thinking about how do we provide services to make sure that we can take care of people um, who need palliative care. We do a lot of education as well, just something you should know, that we have a fellowship. We are training experts in palliative care who can go out in the world and be experts in this area for people whose symptoms um, and whose needs are actually very... um, very precise. Um, We offer an elective so medical students can come and spend time with us and learn specifically about palliative care. We have medical and nursing school curriculum and actually pharmacy school as well where we teach nurses, doctors, pharmacists about palliative care so it's a standard part of the curriculum. I went to medical school here at UCSF. Not Well, it's a long... It's longer ago now than I like to think, but uh, we did not talk about palliative care when I went to medical school. Not one lecture. I didn't actually hear the word when I went to medical school. And it's not that long ago. So we've come a tremendously long way. Um, and we've been um, very proud to provide leadership in that, in that arena. We've had a palliative care service at UCSF since 1999. Um, we also provide leadership and mentorship. We are a palliative care leadership center. We help train other hospitals. We've worked with over 200 hospitals to help them develop palliative care programs. We have a palliative care quality network that's seeking to improve the quality of palliative care to make better care better still. Um, impact ICU to help... Uh, People who are in the intensive care unit get better care. And uh, Jerry Powell, if you're at all interested in learning more, you can go to the Jerry Powell blog and you can read. It's, it's really for healthcare professionals, so it may not be that interesting, but um, lot, there are interesting posts there So um, if, you're, if you're interested in learning more. And we do a lot of research in this area as well to think about how we might do it better. And we have community partners. Maybe you read about this in the Marin IJ just a couple weeks ago. We announced our uh, affiliation with Hospice by the Bay. And we also have an affiliation with the Zen House um, and the Zen Hospice Project uh, here in San Francisco, thinking about all the ways that we might serve, um, serve patients and families. Let me wrap up. Palliative care is for anyone with a serious illness. Uh, The goal is the best possible quality of life for as long as possible. Those were the take-home messages. So if there was a test, that would be the test right there. That's what palliative care is. Um, It helps people live better and longer. Conversations about end-of-life are good for people and their loved ones. It, It gives them better care and helps their loved ones get better care. And there is no one right way to approach this. It's very individualized. But the key is for it to be your way. And the way that it will be your way through illness and through the end of life is if you talk about it, if you ask about it, um, and if you uh, ask for the care that that you want. This is a photo taken from one of our comfort care suites looking out um, east. So you all recognize the landmarks. I don't have to point them out to you. Um, Ultimately, this is about how we take care of each other how we take care of uh, each other in our society and how we care for the most vulnerable. What we want to do is to use our knowledge, use our medical care, use our resources in the best way possible to help people have the best quality of life as they define it and to make sure that the treatments that we provide and the treatments that we undergo really are going to achieve the goals that we want of helping us live better and longer, not simply longer. I want to close with a poem. 
We read a lot of poetry on the palliative care service, I, sh I should tell you, because poetry speaks in a different way, and this is part of the work that we do. Um, I can, I'm also yeah, confident, probably 100% confident, that we are the only service that reads poetry on rounds. <laughs> so if you, if you want to hear poetry here, you're going to have to come to the palliative care team. Um, this is a... Uh, if, there, if we had a poet laureate for the palliative care service, it would be Mary Oliver. I don't know if many of you have read Mary Oliver, but she has wonderful poetry. Um, this poem is called In Blackwater Woods. In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Thank you all very much. So um, this gentleman said that he has a friend who's a patient here at UCSF who has um, third stage um, cancer and, the, and is followed here by an oncologist. And sort of two questions. One, should she be receiving palliative care? And should she have a doctor who's not the oncologist, another doctor? And I said yes and yes. I mean, yes to palliative care for sure. Because she will live better and, and feel better. Um, and as far as having another doctor, um, you know, maybe she'll have a palliative care doctor as her other doctor. And if there are other medical issues, often people, once they have a serious condition like that, kind of stick with that doctor. Um, but there may be other things going on, and they may actually just want some help with decision making, which they can get from palliative care or, or from, uh, you know, a primary care physician. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, what about physical therapy in palliative care? Yeah, it's, they're terrific. We don't have a physical therapist who's specifically part of our palliative care team, but we do refer to palliative care quite a, uh, to um, physical therapy quite a bit. Um, and they're actually very useful. What, one thing that was really eye-opening to me when we met with the physical therapist to ask them what they saw their role is that they said, oh, we know when someone's getting sicker, you know, months before anybody else does because we're the ones who get people out of bed. So first they can walk, and then they can only sit at the edge of the bed, and then they can't get out of bed. And we see this happen over many months. And, um, and so we do reach out to them quite a bit to ask, you know, how's, how's this person doing? You know, what's their strength? Can they get stronger? And so on. So very important. Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. I do. So the question is, what about things that are serious and stressful but may not be terminal, like IBD, right, or MS, uh, multiple sclerosis? Um, it's a really good question. It is uh, debated in our field. 
about what it means and the reason that it is. So, so it, let, me, let me answer it in two ways. One, do I think people with those types of serious illness need palliative care, which is to say really good symptom management, really good discussions about the treatments that they want and support, spiritual, personal, psychological support? Absolutely. Um, uh, given that uh, we don't have enough palliative care teams, palliative care nurses and doctors, is that the place of the highest need um, for experts? Don't know. And that's what we struggle with, that there's more need. Maybe I hope. Yeah, so that's a great question. So the question, to summarize the question is, um, shouldn't all health care be like this, uh, like uh, the way we describe palliative care, and why are we separating it out, and is that kind of providing different kind of care for one group of patients than another? That, yeah. Uh, so yes, all health care should be like that. Uh, from our perspective, we think about, we, we talk about uh, it primary palliative care and kind of specialty palliative care or generalist palliative care and specialty palliative care, which is to say that we believe um, that all doctors and nurses should be able to provide the basics of palliative care, just like we all should know the basics of treating high blood pressure or diabetes. You know, you don't have to go to a high blood pressure expert to get that treated. Some people do. Some people have high blood pressure that's really complicated, and they do, but not everybody does. Um, But those are the people who often um, help lead the field, find new discoveries, um, push things forward. So so there's a role for experts in doing that and integrating palliative care. But our goal is that everybody who provides care here at UCSF is going to be able to provide primary palliative care, and we're doing our thing to make that happen. So thanks. Thanks for that question. Yes. Okay. So the question is, um, if someone is diagnosed with a serious terminal illness um, at that time of diagnosis, is it a protocol here at UCSF that to discuss palliative care? No. It is really up to the individual physician um, to do that. So that is not, we don't have a protocol for that. Um, but if I were king, we would, but I'm not, I'm not the king of UCSF or the king of anything else. <laughs> I'm barely the king of my own house, so... Yeah, so, good, so another uh, important question, is palliative care paid for by insurance, by Medicare and other insurances? And the answer is yes. So if you get palliative care here in the hospital, if you get it at home, it, it is covered. It is a covered benefit. If you have it in the office, it's just like any other doctor, nurse practitioner visit in the office. Um, in the hospital, it's, it's paid for as well. Hospice services are paid for by every insurer. So um, the answer is yes. The challenge is not paying for it. The challenge is finding it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Honestly, if you want, I mean, we get calls in my office now regularly of people in the East Bay, people in the North Bay, people in San Francisco looking for palliative care, and it's just not that easy to find. And you play a role in this. Let me just tell you, you play a role in this by demanding it. Um, If you think about it, so the analogy that I make is to birth. So... Many of you are sort of in my generation or, or a little older will remember how Americans used to be born. So we used to be born in operating rooms, um, and women were put to sleep, and then the baby was born, and the dad was in the waiting room, and that's how it all happened, and then we all kind of got together. But that is not how people are born. My children were not born that way. Uh, birth is very different experience today, much more natural, much more inclusive, much less medicalized. That change did not happen because doctors and nurses sat around and thought, you know, this is a little too medical around here, and we need to just chill this out. That is not what happened. 
what happened was that people said, you know, we do not want, this is a natural experience. People were born for millions of, you know, two million years human beings were being born without medicine. Uh, we can do this differently. And it was that demand. And now, right, we, we tour people through here. And what do we show them? We show them the birthing suite and the jacuzzi tub and the music, right? Because we want to create a home-like environment. If you, we, start to demand this kind of care to say, where is the palliative care here? I'm going to choose where I get my health care based on whether you provide palliative care. Um, things will change. We're trying to make a change, but the demand can, can really make a change and really drive uh, the conversation. Yeah, please. Yeah, so the question is, how do you set expectations between cure and, and palliative care? And how do you um, help patients with decision-making um, when some people are willing to pursue really any treatment in an attempt to um, achieve a cure or at least uh, achieve a treatment that they think might, might help their illness? Is that Yeah. yeah. You know, so... The approach here is really a collaborative approach of really talking about, you know, this is realistically what we might expect from the treatment, and and let's talk about what you what you hope will happen. And people are willing to um, take on different amounts of risk. They're able to tolerate risk differently. People make, and that's why I meant that's what I meant when I said this is a very personal decision about where people make that cutoff. I've seen patients who say, you know, any minute that I can stay alive, any treatment, I'm going to take it. And I have other people who say, no way. You know, I want to stay as far away from this hospital as no offense, but I want to stay far away as possible. Um, The challenge also is that people who are very sick are very vulnerable. So what I say is don't take a treatment that's not been proven. If it's that good, and somebody should have proved it in a study. It's not, those are, they're not easy to do, but they're not that hard to do. And you, shouldn't expe- you should not expose yourself to a treatment that you found on the Internet um, that has not been tested rigorously. We know how to test treatments. And there's a lot of false hope that's put out there, often for a lot of money. Um, and there are people who don't get treatments that really can help because they get other treatments. So um, I, I like to say, you know, if it's been proven... Let's look at it, um, and we can do it. And if you're interested in experiments, there are experiments for treatments too. And the way that science advances is really because people are willing to participate. And that's a great thing to do as well, but to really be careful. And I know what everybody does when you get a diagnosis, you go to Google. That's the first thing you do is you Google it, and you just have to be really careful because there's a lot of... Bad stuff. You know, the UCSF website is a good one. Uh, National Institutes of Health is a good website. The CDC is a good website. Mayo Clinic has a good website. There are some pretty reliable websites out there. Just be careful. Yeah. Correct. So the question is about is, is the role in, in palliative care and decision-making to help people understand their options, what the treatments are, what the risks and benefits are, and then help them make uh, a decision that's um, consistent with their values. That's exactly what it is. Um, And sometimes it's actually interpreting what the specialist says. So often I'll tell my patients, like, okay, I'm going to send you to this specialist, but before you say yes to anything, you come back and then we will talk about it. Because sometimes they will, the specialist will tell me things they won't tell the patient, or people just don't hear it right. You know, it's, it's complicated. You know, in cancer, we talk about response rate. 
you have a 30% chance of responding. So what does response mean? Response means that your cancer either stops growing or gets smaller. That's a good thing. But it does not mean your cancer goes away. And 30% means, yeah, that happens in 30% of people, not that 30% of it gets better. So um, sometimes the language we use as, as physicians, as nurses, can be very um, technical, and people don't walk away always understanding it. So asking enough questions to make sure you really understand um, and make decisions that really are likely to, to help you more than hurt. Yeah, question there. The question is about skilled nursing facilities for people with dementia and other illnesses where that becomes a place where they have to live. Um, and do we reach out to them? Uh, some. We reach out some. If, if there is a new frontier of palliative care, I would say it is the nursing home, the skilled nursing facility. That is, um, that is the new frontier. And there's a lot of work that that needs to be done there. There are some great you know, pockets of this uh, that are being done around the country. Um, there are many challenges in that setting, but that is um, something that needs, needs to be done um, in that setting. More and more of us as Americans are going to spend the rest of our lives, you know, the end of our lives, in, in those kinds of settings. And so thinking about what that's like and how to make that as good as possible is going to be really important. That's just going to balloon. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is about what about um, people for, for who don't speak English um, from different cultures and have different um, uh, primary languages? Do we have services to help take care of those people and to assess literacy? I, I'll be honest. We don't. We don't have a system for formally addressing literacy um, in that setting, but we do pride ourselves in trying to use language that is as understandable as possible and as free of jargon as possible. And we think a lot about how we use interpreters. Um, we think about that a lot. We do have interpreter telephones um, in, throughout the hospital, and so if English is not a primary language, we do use interpreter phones. Um, and we think a lot about that and getting interpreters in person when we're having really serious conversations, and also of prepping the uh, interpreter. And in fact, um, we've done, we did a study at UCSF where we surveyed interpreters from across the country about palliative care conversations specifically, and what's difficult, and what doctors and nurses can do to make those conversations better. And one of our colleagues, uh, a couple of our colleagues at San Francisco General, Ann Kinderman, um, and Alicia Fernandez with some colleagues, actually developed a whole curriculum for interpreters around palliative care, including a glossary. And if you go on the California Healthcare Foundation website, you can actually find that so that you can see how do you say palliative care in Mandarin. It's really interesting because if I'm there with an interpreter and I say I'm Dr. Panela with the palliative care service and the interpreter says, you know, palliative care and I understand it, then they're not explaining it right to my patient. And there are many ways to explain it. So we've done a lot of work to close that divide and, and be as um, sensitive and um, helpful to people as possible. But it's a real issue. I mean, it is real. It is a real. It's hard enough to do these in English. Uh, it, it, and, and so we just have to really think about that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, you know, the hope would be that you could get it through your primary care physician. Okay. 
depending on where they are in the stage of illness, um, hospice might be appropriate. You know, that's a, very, that's a personal decision, but hospice could be appropriate. And while I said there was a six, you had to give a six-month prognosis, that is true. But, but you can live longer than that. There's, like, there's no rule that says you have to die in six months or that you, you, you revoke it at six months. So, um, and there are people who both graduate from, from hospice. Oh, my, this just keeps coming up here, and I, it's silly. Um, there are people who graduate from hospice as well as um, you know, people who live longer than, than six months. So that would probably be the best way to get it, but also to ask for it. And to be specific, I think... Okay, so here's the other thing you're going to hear if you ask for it. So this is what your doctor might say. You're not ready for palliative care. You don't need that yet. So that's a very common thing. I have a whole talk I give to doctor colleagues about what that means when you say she's not ready for palliative care because it's almost never true. Um, So you have to be prepared for that and say, I get it. I'm not dying. I know that. What I want is, you know, what palliative care is about. Yeah, good. so good question. So I said earlier that um, depression, what I said is depression is not normal. So people do get depressed, it's just not normal. Depression is an illness even at the end of life. That, just to clarify. So what do we do about that and how do we know the difference between sad and depressed? Uh, you know, that's part of medicine. Uh, I, when I said hopelessness, hopelessness is actually one of the ways. So how do we know that anyone's depressed, right? There's a way, there are ways that we evaluate anybody who might be depressed. And we ask about things like, you know, how's your appetite? Are you sleeping? How are you sleeping? How's your energy level? Do you do things you enjoy? These are the kinds of things, you know, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not doing things you enjoy. That's difficult when you have serious illness, right? How's your appetite? Lousy. <laughs> I'm sick. Do you do things you enjoy? No, I'm stuck in bed. So you can't use those Symptoms, if you will, but we ask things that are much more kind of psychological. Hopelessness, for example, is something that's associated with depression when people are hopeless. It, it is, I'll tell you, the reason I like that question about hope is I ask people who are very sick, who are very near the end of life, what they hope for, and they hope for stuff. And they have hope. They hope for things. And knowing that is great because we can help them achieve those things even near the very end of life. Um, and it gives us something to, to think about, but it's really remarkable. And when someone tells you they don't have hope, um, that really is a sign of depression. So they can be sad but still have hope. Yeah. Yes, question. Uh, so the, the question has to do a little bit with sort of generational. Are we seeing a shift, the generational shift among physicians and nurses? And um, how do we make this conversation, maybe from the doctor side, more normal, more regular? Um, I am very pleased to report that the answer to that is yes, it is shifting. So I didn't show you this data, but there was an interesting study that was done by the Regents Foundation of doctors asking them exposure to palliative care uh, as medical students in their training and in continuing education. And it broke down exactly on generational lines. Doctors 60 years and older... 5% had ever heard about palliative care in their training or in medical school, which is really where we develop our practice. Um, If you looked at doctors 39 and under, it was 75%. So if you look, almost, it's about, it's in the 90s percent of medical schools um, have at least one hospital that offers a palliative care program. So students are exposed to it, nurses are exposed to it, um, and trainees are being exposed to it, and we're teaching it in medical school. 
In fact, if you want to see the lecture, you can actually go on YouTube. If you want to see the lecture I give to the medical students about palliative care, which is similar to what we did here today, it's on YouTube. So that, that's the shift is like there is no lecture anymore. It's just like on YouTube, but it's there. So we do teach them. They come to our elective. So things are changing. I'm, I'm very hopeful about where the world is going. And, you know, just to let you know, you, we live here in California. California, in, in June, our legislature passed SB 1004. SB 1004 says that if you have Medi-Cal in California, you have to be provided palliative care alongside curative intent treatment. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. The hope is that other insurers will pick that up and that ultimately Medicare will pick that up. There are experiments happening across the country in Medicare. We have an experiment at our memory and aging center that's going on now, a study looking at integrating palliative care into the care of people with dementia. So there's a lot. I I am very hopeful looking forward. Uh, we are also at the top, at uh, the bottom of the hour, however you want to say it. It's 8.30 is my point, and we, we were going to go till then. I'm happy to take more questions up here, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.